This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I am the Senior Editor for Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager for Extelligent Healthcare Media. In early November 2021, the Biden administration announced a vaccine mandate for all healthcare facilities that participated in Medicare and Medicaid. All of their healthcare employees had to be fully vaccinated. This rule impacts 76,000 facilities and 10.4 million healthcare workers. The administration also introduced a similar vaccine mandate for employers, which the Supreme Court shot down. Both mandates have been very battered by the public debate. And despite the fact that the Supreme Court upheld the healthcare worker vaccine mandate, the battle continues. In early February 2022, 16 states filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Louisiana in order to stop the vaccine mandate from going into effect. The ongoing dispute over this law provides an interesting case study in how federal regulations can influence healthcare workforce management, both directly and indirectly. Here to discuss those implications further, we have two guests, both from Corals and Brady, John Kammerzelt and Sarah Coyne. Sarah and John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. thank you so much for having us. Before we get too in-depth into the questions, I'd love to have you each introduce yourselves and share a bit of your background. Okay. I'm Sarah Coyne. I have been a partner at Quarles and Brady for decades, even though I look so young. I have almost all of my time at Quarles and Brady been in the health law group, and my practice is largely advising hospitals and other healthcare entities on regulatory compliance. I also am an adjunct professor at the UW School of Law and teach health law there. And they are all well up on the CMS vaccine mandate because it is one of the craziest and most exciting legal things to happen in recent times. Hi, I'm John Kammerzeltz. I'm a partner here in Quarles and Brady, a health law attorney working primarily with health systems and other providers that sort of span the spectrum. I've been with the firm for about eight years, been practicing for about 10, and I also chair the group here in our firm's Madison office. So really excited to be here. This is obviously a very interesting topic that's at the forefront of certainly everyone's mind in, in the healthcare industry. And I, I know that over the past few months, there's been so much going on. There's a lot of confusion. So certainly happy to be here and to be hopefully shedding some light on that. But yeah, I guess that will remain to be seen. We just need our crystal ball. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll take everything with a great assault, knowing that you cannot predict the future, but we are excited to have you on and to hear your insights. So states continue to be challenging the healthcare mandate. It's already been through a series of challenges. And now most recently, it's going through another series of lawsuits. And I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of the latest lawsuit and what that could mean for the vaccine mandate. You know, could it be overturned? Is that not even really a consideration? Well, as you flagged, you know, in early February, February 4th, there was another lawsuit filed by 16 states led by the attorney general in Montana and also the attorney general in Louisiana. So that meant we had about two to three weeks of reprieve from the continuous litigation that has sort of dominated the headlines. And, you know, I guess at a high level, what we're seeing is that they've recycled some of the same arguments that were made in the initial challenge. That is, this is creating havoc in the healthcare labor market. 
that there's going to be a devastating financial impact for both rural communities and states generally. And these were some of the arguments that were offered in the first round of litigation. But the crux of the new complaint is essentially that circumstances have changed. Delta is no longer the dominant strain. We're now looking at this Omicron variant and the vaccines, the data is showing, at least they argue that they aren't as effective against the Omicron variant and that therefore the rationale on which the decision was made to uphold the mandate is no longer valid. So things have changed and therefore, you know, the basis on which you decided that everything was valid for upholding the mandate no longer exists. And that particularly speaks to the notice and comment period. If, if you recall, the CMS, when they issued the mandate in November, they skipped what is normally a process called the notice and comment period, which is anytime an agency promulgates a rule, they have to go through this process by which the public is given an opportunity to make comments. And, and CMS skipped that, and their basis for doing so was, you know, this is a very urgent thing. The Delta variant is upon us. It is spreading like wildfire, and we need to get this rule ASAP. So essentially what they're saying now is, look, here we are on the other side of it. Circumstances have changed. Delta is no longer the predominant variant. So that's sort of, and they're also pointing to this new guidance that was issued by CMS on January 25th, which extended the mandate to state surveyors. So the people that go into the hospitals and other regulated to entities. To enforce this rule and others. Right. And so the argument here is, okay, this CMS has further overstepped their authority. In addition to the sort of change circumstances argument, they're pointing to this as another example of agency overreach. So mm-hmm. this twisting turning road that the CMS vaccine mandate has taken is so unprecedented. And if you were to go to our website and look at our client updates, you can see how crazy it is just by the volume of them. Every other day we were putting out another update. Okay, now half the states are enjoined from enforcing the mandate. Okay, now all of the states are enjoined, well, except for Texas. And then the rule was expedited to the Supreme Court, which narrowly upheld the CMS vaccine mandate and simultaneously shot down the contemporaneous OSHA mandate that was going to mandate the vaccine for employers of 100 or more employees. It had already been kind of a bear for us healthcare lawyers to figure out which rule was going to affect who and why. And so in a way, it was a relief that they upheld one and shut down the other. It made it a little clearer. And then they dealt with Texas after the fact. But it was, despite being haphazard and twisting and turning all over the place, this idea, this vaccine mandate has gotten a lot of thought by a lot of different regulatory bodies, judicial bodies, et cetera. And while it is rare for CMS to skip its process, and it's also rare for CMS to so specifically get involved in the management of the healthcare workforce, those were not hasty or ill-thought-out efforts. There is nothing that I see in the complaint of these 16 states that filed in February that is going to overturn the upholding of the CMS mandate. There are the arguments that are being advanced, the one with the most 
oomph to it, as John mentioned, is, well, that whole emergency, the reason that you could act this extremely per the Supreme Court was you were basing it on the Delta variant, which is a little bit of an overstatement. I mean, really, it was based on the fact that we're in a global pandemic with unprecedented numbers. And yes, the predominant variant has changed, and this variant doesn't react as well to the vaccine, but it's a all hands on deck doing everything that we can do kind of environment. I would be surprised. And I will go on record saying I thought originally that the Supreme Court would go the other way because it is so rare for the note and comment period to be skipped. I thought, oh, they're at least going to make CMS go back through the note and comment period until I heard the arguments and then I knew which way it was going to go and I knew exactly who was going to vote which way. <laughs> and so my prediction skills are Chris, not are not <laughs> perfect, obviously, but I really, if I had to bet on this, I would bet that the mandate stays upheld and that this lawsuit is not successful. Also, treating guidance like it's an actionable rule. The thing has unfolded in a rule, which was the actual mandate that came out November 5th. That's where the process, if any, was shortened. That's where it was shortened. And then everything since then has been guidance. And normally, you would not see guidance challenged in a judicial setting. And they're not even challenging the original guidance, which is the main oomph of the compliance requirements. You have to be vaccinated. The guidance is just, here's how you do it, and here's the specifics. So to the extent they're relying on the fact that this January 25th additional guidance now extends it to state surveyors, I think that argument gets nowhere. Great. The coronavirus pandemic has already significantly depleted our healthcare workforce. There's just countless evidence for that. And now healthcare workers who do not want to get vaccinated, you know, for various reasons are withdrawing or threatening to withdraw from the industry as well. So, and I know John, you had already brought up earlier about there's the argument that they're recycling about the devastation that this could cause to the workforce. And so how would you address that concern? Do you think that the mandate does impact labor shortages and the concerns, are they valid? Yeah, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. I would highlight the fact that the labor shortages existed pre-pandemic, and that was due to a number of reasons. We have an aging workforce, especially in nursing, combined with an older, sicker patient population. There's been concerns over the insufficient pipeline of up-and-coming healthcare workers. That's existed for some time now. And then there's just always been ongoing recruitment and retention issues in healthcare and particularly in our rural communities. So all of these things have existed sort of pre-pandemic, right? And yes, it is the case that the pandemic has exacerbated some of these issues in a couple of ways. One, you see just general burnout, pandemic-related fatigue all across the healthcare Extreme. industry. Yeah. And, and then you also have in non-healthcare sectors, this whole world of sort of a virtual remote working environment. So you have healthcare workers who by nature of their job have to be on site, who are burnt out, and they're looking at non-healthcare industries and saying, boy, that would be really nice to work from home. That's happening everywhere, right? But it's another factor that is contributing to the healthcare worker crisis, right? And then thirdly, as you point out, and which is the basis of this question, 
is are people leaving because of the mandate? And a lot of this will depend on where you live and what health system you work at or what entity you work at. But I will say that there is kind of overwhelming at a big picture level, at a macro level, there's overwhelming support for the COVID vaccine among healthcare workers. If you look at the AMA and you look at all these other trade organizations and they've all come out in, in really strong, unequivocal terms in support of the vaccine mandate. But that said, are there instances at the micro level where an individual hospital will have a really difficult time depending on their employee makeup about people not wanting to get vaccines? Sure. So it's hard to say they're not valid. Do I think that at a macro level, it's going to be a statistically significant impact? I don't think so. I think those other factors that we named are the primary drivers of the labor shortage, but at the micro level, certainly. And so to say that there's no validity to the argument is really probably right. a, a little too far. And another factor is how close we are now to the vaccination compliance deadlines. Many of the hospitals have already passed their first dose deadline. So, uh, but if people were going to leave, they probably would have left by now. I mean, there were always exceptions and always yeah. more to come and people who might get frustrated going forward or maybe hospitals and other healthcare entities aren't all the way through their exemption process yet because you could get a religious or medical exemption to the requirement to have a vaccine. But I think at this point where so many hospitals, a bunch of them were already mandating the vaccine even before CMS mandated them to mandate the vaccine. And of the remainder who are doing it because CMS enacted this mandate, most of them have gone through now the requirements and run through the initial exemptions and run through the initial, what can we do to accommodate, like reassign folks to a remote working environment. So I don't think we're going to see another big impact on the labor shortage at this point. I think that's another weakness in the current lawsuit. And kind of going off of that, you know, we've brought up a couple of times the general trend towards challenges in retention and recruiting. Are there any lessons here more generally for the hospital workforce retention strategy? I mean, obviously this fear is not new that they're going to be losing staff, even if it's not actually specifically regarding the vaccine mandate. But I know, as you mentioned, CMS has been putting out guidance about how to sort of handle the pushback that hospitals might be receiving. Is there any of that that could be useful for hospitals during this time either with regards to this specific situation where people are leaving because of the vaccine or just generally where we're seeing this depletion happen? One thing I think is becoming clearer to all of us who work in healthcare is that temporary staffing agencies are here for the long haul. It's going to outlast the pandemic. As John pointed out, we were really short, especially on nurses prior to the pandemic. And certainly during the pandemic, nursing, respiratory therapists, et cetera, the staffing has dropped off and the use of temporary staffing agencies has increased. Some states are coordinating for their healthcare providers state-run contracts with temporary staffing agencies, which is helpful because as has popped up in the news a lot for a while now, there is kind of a battle going on about our temporary staffing agencies raking hospitals over the coals with rates. Are they poaching their staff, et cetera? If you're running through a state-run contract, you at least know that 
there's a number of you working on the parameters of that contract. But we certainly couldn't do without temporary staffing agencies in the hospital industry. And I think it's going to be part of the workforce model for years to come. There are other things that are sort of planting seeds now that we may see the fruits of quite a while from now, but there is governmental funding going to hospitals for COVID-related expenses. There's a whole, all the CARES Act money that went. And there's also funding specific to developing and training of the future healthcare workforce, residencies, training programs for nurses in rural communities, et cetera. Getting the pipeline. Yeah, get that pipeline full again. Yeah. So while those are not ironclad mechanisms, they are at least strategies that hospitals should work into their framework and strategy. Mm -hmm. Same with licensing flexibilities. That has been an ongoing and state-by-state question, whether or not folks can come out of retirement and help the workforce that way, whether they can not worry about which state they're licensed in, if they have expertise to provide the needed service. And that is definitely a patchwork quilt because different states have emergencies declared, different states have different legislation in place about that. But to the extent the federal government has had anything to say about it, like with the Section 1135 waivers that CMS put through back at the beginning of the pandemic, CMS isn't going to cite entities for loosening up on licensing requirements to allow a greater workforce flow. Yeah, and I'll just add on to that. I agree with all of that. And having the entities maximize flexibilities in telemedicine as well. We talked a little bit about there being this increased competition in the non-healthcare sectors that offer work from home. You can have these very flexible work arrangements and obviously it's not apples to apples and there are certain limitations just both practically and legally when you're providing telemedicine, but as an entity, making sure that you're maximizing all the flexibilities that have been granted at the state and federal level and employing those telemedicine strategies to help retain people who might otherwise be wanting to go somewhere else. Excellent. Well, is there anything that we discussed that you wanted to dig in more on before we get off or anything that we didn't touch on that you think is important to this conversation? One thing I just wanted to mention is that there are some things hospitals can do themselves without waiting for, you know, policy to change or states to legislate. And a lot of that is checking that they are providing a safe and competitively compensated work environment for their staff, ensuring that they're complying with the safety requirements where people aren't working six double shifts in a row, that they have PPE, et cetera, that they're aware of all the funding opportunities and grants that are out there to be able. And I realize that hospitals are financially struggling, especially the smaller ones right now. So it's easy for me sitting here in this office to say that. The other thing that they can do is be on top of their policies and their contracts and make sure that they're up-to-date, compliant, so that when CMS does come in, they have a good compliant picture to show the surveyors and make sure the surveyors are vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I do think 
that there are steps being taken at the legislative and regulatory level to address maybe not so much you know the CMS mandate implications, but the labor shortage generally. You look at examples even recently of the American Rescue Plan allocating a whole bunch of money to states to develop plans to recruit primary care physicians. And if you look at Build Back Better, President Biden's seminal piece of legislation or that it hasn't passed, but if you look, there is provisions about creating new residency slots to help address that pipeline that is, is lacking. And from a regulatory standpoint, we're seeing states and the agencies in those states that regulate the practice of medicine ease up restrictions on scope of practice for non-physician practitioners with the intent being to allow those non-physicians to practice at the very tippy top of their license so that they can do more. They have more autonomy. And so I, I think there, there are things that are being done to address sort of the shortage generally, but again, none of this moves <laughs> as fast as you want it to, particularly if you're, you know, in the hospital or in the organization. So, but, you know, things are, on the horizon, hopefully, and I think it'll just be a matter of seeing what can get done. Yes, we'll see where this goes. But for now, thank you both so much for your insight into what's going on and what we can potentially expect down the road. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's k-w-a-d-d-i-l-l at extelligentmedia.com media.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.